What's happening, everyone? Jose Nino here, back to bringing you another thought-provoking episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I'm joined with one individual who has the uncanny ability of blending politics with solid economic theory. Phil Bishop is the Bay County Republican Party vice chairman and the assistant editor of the Mises Institute. He's one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter and is a breath of fresh air when it comes to political analysis as well as overall like economic analysis because he knows how to blend the practical with the theoretical, a skill that is very rare among a lot of political commentators these days. How's everything going, though? I'm doing great. Uh, yeah, thanks for that uh, warm introduction. All right. Yeah, just to like start off, could you give my listeners like a brief overview of your political and economic career? Yeah, well, um, I was born into a very political family. My father, uh, Buddy Bishop, was communications director for the Republican Party a while back. He did a lot of trainings on communications and things like that. And so I was kind of raised listening to Rush Limbaugh on talk radio a lot. And I was always interested in politics from that end. And then after the financial crisis of 2008 kind of combined with the debacle of the Iraq war, I lost a lot of faith in you know, the Republican Party and increasingly sort of mainstream politics. And then I discovered uh, Ron Paul's campaign around that same time. And obviously a big part of his big push was interest in Austrian economics. And given the chaos that we had seen from the financial crisis, the, the responses from the Fed and the like, the more I read in Austrian economics, the more uh, I, I found it compelling. I got, um, you know, started writing about it on my own uh, on the sidelines. And because of that, I was able to get a job after the Tea Party revolution of 2010. I got a job with uh, the House Financial Services Committee, thanks to uh, the new chairman, Spencer Backus. I was up there for a little over three years with the, our next chairman, Jeb Hinsterling. And then um, you know, I got to experience seeing how Congress actually operates. You know, got to work with Ron Paul's office directly on some things. And so it was a great experience. Shortly thereafter, I, I was hired by the Mises Institute uh, to serve on the communications team. I got to know Jeff Dice because he was chief of staff of Ron's office in D.C., and so I've been on that side of things for quite a while now, since 2015, um, you know, producing content, helping with scholars, promoting content, and, and you know, really going deep into the Austrian theory side of things. And you know, then between the Trump era in 2016, which kind of shook up what I thought could be done, coupled with, in particular, the degree to which you know, my quality of life has been fundamentally altered. Because, you know, a Republican beat a Democrat by 33,000 votes here in the state of Florida, I've become kind of radicalized that there is something to be done within the political process. While I don't think politics has the solution to all the problems that we have in society, there are marginal gains that matter. And again, any libertarian out there, any hardcore, you know, whatever, you know, you can have all the skepticism. And I think there's a lot to be valid about the Republican Party. You can bemoan the quality of the democracy and et cetera, et cetera. Ultimately, however, I'm very thankful that 33,000 voters showed up to elect Ron DeSantis and not Andrew Gillum. And when you have those battles going on there, I think there is a role for organization. And so what I try to do is to make sure that, you know, to try to keep people that are very deeply read in the theory 
see a way of being politically active. Because I, I think ultimately there, there is, you know, I, I do believe that the quality of ideas is important for a political movement. And uh, that's what, you know, the, the area where I try to play in. No, I fully agree on all fronts with regards to that. Now, this is an interesting segue because this, there's a huge debate, I believe, in your typical like libertarian and Austrian economic circles about the best way to get involved politically. You'll have like some folks prefer going the libertarian party route, while others opt for Republican Party entryism, if you will. You're pretty vocal on Twitter and other social media outlets in how you advocate for doing activism within the Republican Party. What would you say is the case for working within the GOP as opposed to the LP? Well, one matters and the other one doesn't. <laughs> I mean, it's that simple. And you know, we, we have a two-party system. You can complain about it. Fine. Who cares? Complain about it all you want. Ultimately, that's what exists. It's codifying the law, et cetera. And so, you know, you can either spend a whole lot of time and energy trying to reform the party process in America. And then what do you achieve? It can now, you know, like it doesn't provide you any policy wins. It does simply provide, you know, perhaps in theory, if you're successful, which is a long shot in the first place, you know, something that helps a, an organizational process. Who, you know, who cares? Ultimately, if your preference is policy outcomes, if, if your preference is liberty and not creating a platform for yourself and a third party, then I think there's, you know, obviously the option is to work within the two-party system. And if you're in a hardcore blue area, then fine, be a Democrat. I've got nothing against that. My suggestion would be to move. But if you're going to stick around, then fine, do whatever is useful. Um, but I think ultimately the Republican Party right now, particularly given the scenario where, you know, what, what Trump has done to this party, it has created a huge opportunity for outsiders. It has created an opportunity where if you are creative, if you have fun and you can speak to the masses, there's a lot of distrust with people that can't. And so I think that, you know, if, if all of the messages that I think good economics teaches you, which fundamentally it's about who is ripping you off, Right. Good economics tells you, you know, how you're being scammed by people, particularly the state. And so if you recognize that you're being ripped off, then I think that it is very easy to translate what I think is good economic policy into a populist message. And again, I think the best platform for that, particularly on the right, obviously on the right, would be the Republican Party and the image of Donald Trump. Can't say I disagree there. Yeah, there's like definitely a lot of people who tend to not understand like political reality and think that just playing Puritan games in politics will win when in reality you have to like actually work with the system as it is and then like disrupt from within because you can still do that. Like you can still play an inside outside game if you're pretty clever. But when you go like the LP route, you're basically not even in the game. It's it's kind of like a form of anti-politics when you engage in like third-party politics in the U.S. because it's one of the most consistent trends in American history that third parties just lay eggs during presidential election. Well, even more fundamental than that, like there's, there's, there's a dynamic here at play where the entire sort of essence of the Austrian school of thought, right, is subjective theory of value, that the value of a good is in the, the eyes of the consumer. It's nothing inherent within the good itself. And so you have a lot of people a lot of libertarians that think if they themselves are smart, 
if they themselves care about liberty, then that means they're obviously the best in politics. And it's like, no, being right doesn't matter. It is the ability to convince other people that you're right. 100%. And so if, you, if, if your ideas, if, if you really believe that your ideas are good and just, then you should be doing everything you can on the marketing side to make sure that in, um, many people agree with you. And sometimes they might agree with you because your hair looks good or, you know, you're, you're not fat, right? Like there's all sorts of weird things that people end up deciding. And, I can, and, and we, we can scoff at it and we can look down upon it and we can say, oh, well, you know, those, 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 those silly people, they're voting because they saw this TikTok. Well, who, well I mean, ultimately, you know, then, then, then do the TikTok to get that, that view, right? There's, there's nothing that comes into, you know, a, a vote motivated by deep intellectual thought counts just as much as someone that's voting based off of your hair. And I, I think that you know, if, if you really care about your ideas in the political process, then you have to accept that aspect. This is what democracy does. If you didn't have a democracy, then you can deal with another scenario, but like that's what you got. So you got to play the rules that are there. And, and there, there is nothing noble about doing politics poorly. If you don't like the nastiness of politics, failing at politics doesn't make you noble. It just makes you irrelevant. Oh, yeah. And it makes the whole thing a waste of time. So if, if you don't want to do it, fine. That's fair. If, if you want to focus on yourself and build up your wealth and, and be apolitical and, you know, that's, that's all fine, right? You don't you know, not every single person needs to be a political actor and you can be doing meaningful things to make yourself more free, make your community more free without doing that. But, you know, if, if you're going to play that game, then don't waste your time by doing it poorly. Oh, that's absolutely spot on. In fact, again, political strategy is ultimately value neutral. It doesn't matter if you have like the right ideas or not. If like the other side is able to organize better than you and is on point when it comes to its marketing and overall like political movement, they're just going to clean your clock. Sorry. It doesn't matter how much Mises or whatever you've read. You have to like actually put in the work, hit the pavement hard and know what works in politics and what does it. Now, this is one thing I tell people as well about the importance about not being tone deaf when you operate in politics. Like, Namely, I tell them to always listen to what their grassroots constituents say, like in a city, county, municipality, specifically what they're complaining about. Because that's like, I think a crucial aspect of like mass democratic politics, something we cannot escape. And from there, I recommend to people to campaign or at least build organizations around these said issues or grievances. It's one of like the easiest ways, in my opinion, to stay re- relevant. Based on your experience in Florida politics, what are like the main grievances that your typical Florida Republican voter has these days? Uh, well, obviously, COVID has been an organizing force and, and pushback against it. The thing is that, you know, that victory more or less has been won. Yeah, that's one of those things where there's, there's only so much energy you can still kind of get out of that issue now that uh, you know, people aren't losing their jobs over not getting vaccinated. One of the things that I think is, particularly where I'm at, there's, there's a lot of anti-corruption stuff. That's important. There's a lot of organization on con- uh, constitutional carry, things like that, which is great. I think that there is something brewing, though, that Republicans need to get in front of um, that I think is going to be you know, a greater issue over time, and that is housing costs in, Bay, in, in in Florida generally. And that's a problem because it's an issue where, for example, Florida Democrats you know, wrote a letter to DeSantis for, as a campaign stunt, which is the best thing they've done in a while, to be perfectly honest. And um, you know, their, their, their answer was you know, rent control and et cetera, yeah. which is not good, right? Yeah. 
then the DeSantis response was understandable. The DeSantis response was like, hey, look, don't complain to us. Like, it's Biden's fault because Biden, you know, we, we have Biden inflation, which is fine, whatever. Um, the problem is, is that if, if you're, you know, working class Floridian and you don't, you know, your, your rent's going up 100 bucks every two months, you know, saying, hey, write a letter to Biden doesn't do you, do you much good. And so I think that this is going to be one of those issues that, you know, the, the strength of the Republican Party realignment right now is a transition to being the party of the working class. And so how does the Republican Party solve this ultimate working class issue? Because it, it is a problem, right? You know, having, again, I, I live in an area of Bay County in the Panhandle. We are the most tourist-dependent county in the state as a percentage of size of our economy. So we've done very, very well. This past year in particular, we had restaurants sitting all-time highs because of freedom being popular. The problem is that we have all these people buying up houses, you know, leaving California, leaving Wisconsin, et cetera, buying houses here. That drives up the prices. If you are a server in some of these industries, right, the server, the, you know, there's, there's this big divide between, okay, yeah, housing prices have never been better here. Um, a lot of tourists are coming in, but we're short on work staff because they can't afford to live in this state with houses go, housing prices going up. And so th- that's one of those organizational aspects that I think is going to be very important going forward. And I think it's an area where if the Republican Party is going to be what it needs to be, it's going to need to find solutions to this. And because if not, then we, then we are going to end up ceding space to the economics. So it's like, right now, our, our strength with, with the working class, I think, is, is largely cultural driven. Some of it, there's, a, there's an economic department, like particularly, I think, you know, to say it as a standing of the working class has benefited from uh, COVID, right? But ultimately, in the long run, I don't think that will be enough if people are priced out of their houses and having to leave. And so I think that's one of those issues that it's something that, you know, if, if you want to kind of be on the, the leading edge of, I think, populist movements going forward, that's something that a whole lot of communities are feeling. And uh, I think that's going to be, can we step up with solutions to meaningfully make a difference in those areas? I think that's going if, to, if you can solve that, if, if we can, then I think this, this working class realignment could end up being as transformative as, it, as uh, some people would like it to believe. That's a pretty interesting observation about the housing cost issues because that is one thing the left is pretty good at when it comes to anything like cost of living. They can demagogue off that issue. And no matter how bad they are. Yeah. Like, no, no, no matter how bad they are at, at actually governing on that, right? Like, the, the, worst housing, the, the worst housing issues in the world are blue care areas. But in spite of the, the, the reality on the ground, they, they're very good at demagoguing. In, in terms of campaign side. Oh, big time. Yeah, th- that's something they're good at. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see because you'll probably have see some states, I think, hopefully start like limiting as well, like this influx of people and also consider more, I'd say like common sense zoning deregulation that especially on environmental grounds where they hack away at some of that stuff because a lot of that stuff does restrict housing supply, there's definitely some debates to be had there because not offering answers is not a thing because I think as Jeff Dice brilliantly put it before, in politics, something always beats nothing. 
going back to Ron DeSantis, I mean, he, uh, as you mentioned, he made his name as like the de facto anti-lockdown governor of America. And obviously a lot of other GOP governors, especially here in Texas, Greg Abbott following in his footsteps when it became politically convenient. Yeah, he's been great on that issue among others. How would you rate uh, DeSantis's performance so far as governor in your estimation? I, I can't ask for anything more than what he's done. Um, doesn't mean I, I agree with him 100% on every single issue, but I think that he has been, you know, he, he's, he's made dramatic impacts on our quality of life just from his own leadership position. I think he's a very well-read man. I, th- I think he reads a lot more genuine, you know, interesting intellectual thought than many out there. He, he often sides for substantive policy beyond simply a good press release headline. Perhaps not always, but, you know, it's part of politics. But, like, he goes for inconvenient pushes at times when a headline would have probably done a lot of cover for him. And I think the biggest, the, 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 his victory on getting corporate employment vaccine mandates stopped in Florida, I think, is one of the great victories of conservative policy in the, you know, last two decades. Because what it was, was him as a executive writing his popularity of his proposal, of, of his record already, addressing a real demand from his constituents. We don't want to be fired for not getting a jab. He was able to effectively use that and had the courage to stand up to not only the Chamber of Commerce crowd and various you know, international corporations, but he stood up to his own party. He stood up to the Speaker of the Florida House. He stood up to the Speaker of the, the President of Florida Senate. And he said, you're going to do what I want you to do. And he did it by initially staking out a far, in an even more stronger position. He wanted to really open up companies into uh, legal liability for any consequences from vaccines and, and all that sort of stuff. And because he went with an aggressive ask, because he had the people behind his side, because he didn't refuse to back down, and because he knew it was right, he was able to get a very meaningful vaccine mandate ban. And I think there's a lot to be learned from that lesson. I think it is an example of what we need across the country. Now we're in a situation where, you know, if, if the Republican Party becomes the party of Ron DeSantis, you know, you give me 25 Ron DeSantis's in red states around the country, and all of a sudden, who is the president means a lot less than it used to. Because it means they're relevant, right? But like, you know, again, my life in Florida under the Biden regime has been pretty good because I've got a governor that'll fight back against them. And, uh, you know, it's, it makes a big difference in your day-to-day life. Couldn't agree more, man. It's the truth. And there are some people who will deny it, but like, depending on who you have, like, as you're like, that's in your like state government, it could be like the difference between living in some biosecurity state gulag or at least having like some freedoms available to you. So be thankful for what you have and also take notice of like your state politics altogether and like local stuff too. So, yeah, I think what the, um, I like about DeSantis is that he has caused like a stir by signing legislation that ba- would like ban critical race theory and even also like e-verify reforms into law, as well as like some stuff about limiting big tech influence. Now, outside of the housing reforms that you want him to pursue, what other reforms would you like to see DeSantis sign into law? 
I think uh, you can, obviously constitutional carry is a big one um, just to, to kind of reward your activist base. I think increasingly going forward, the money issue is going to be very important. You know, if, if you break down the polling, I mean, it's inflation. That's the number one thing, taking Biden's poll numbers more than anything else, more than Afghanistan, more than you know, COVID, more than other stuff, pooping your pants at the Vatican. You know, it's inflation that actually matters more. And I think Republicans need a solution to it. And I think there's a multi-pronged approach there. And I think one of the things that can be done at the state level is embracing what Wyoming has done regarding cryptocurrency and, and that regulation, which creates a very favorable uh, regulatory landscape, then also empowers municipal governments in the state itself to hold Bitcoin um, on its balance sheets. I think that's going to be, I, I, I want to see municipal governments and I want to see red states divesting from cash holdings and government bonds as long-term safe haven assets and replace it with gold and Bitcoin. And I, Wyoming's already given a model for how it can be done. Texas has its Texas State Depository Gold Bank. There's other things at that level. I think anything in that line is going to be a good thing. And I, get, I think ultimately, again, if, if you start having red states buy gold or buy or, or hold Bitcoin securely, you're going to do it right. I think those are the sort of movements that can be very, very important in the long term. And uh, I, I think ultimately, again, it is easy to campaign off of all sorts of things and have no solution to deal with it. I think a lot of Republicans are going to try to campaign off of inflation without having no solution to it. I think this is the sort of stuff that is important structurally to deal with the consequences of our crazy monetary system. And I, I, you know, it, it, there's other things that we on the federal level, I think, to complement it. That's a different topic in itself, but that's what I would like to see DeSantis lead on. And that's what I'd like to see other Republican states adopt is to get a, a long-term serious focus on inflation. Big time. I, I think that this is like probably one of the avenues of, with regards to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies where a lot of libertarians can actually have an impact, especially like the more economically reductionist types, because there's actual momentum on the issue and people are talking about it a lot. Like one of the easiest ways to know if you have a winning political issue, in my opinion, is if it has like legislative momentum or if like people are talking about it because one of the problems I've seen with a lot of libertarians is that they kind of project their ideological like fantasies onto an electorate. Right. And when they try to like push these like really esoteric causes, right. everybody just gets put to sleep. Absolutely. It's something that's long plagued really activists of all sorts. And I, I think it, you, you definitely see it, I think, playing up right now with a lot of the young national populist types who, you know, they, they think that people are really excited about, you know, some of their, their pet projects, like, particularly some, like, whereas, like, it, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily an embrace of, of, of some sort of explicit policy platform as much as just cultural anxiety, you know, opposition to, wokeness being rubbed in people's faces all, you know, there's the, 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 the feeling that the current regime is un-American, kind of in the most base sense. And, and I, it's, it's always so easy to see political victories as something justifying much broader interest in your larger policy platform than you, you know, that people actually care about. And I think that's always something that, uh, you know, it, particularly if you are someone in politics motivated by an underlying intellectual artifice. Like you, you always have to check so that you're not falling into that temptation of, of you know, blinding you from the world really is. Um, because the good thing is that you know, once you accept that, then, then you recognize, okay, well, where, where are the little areas on the margins that we can fit stuff in? For example, 
Like, you don't need to get the majority of Republicans to, you know, understand the, the theoretical nature of Hayek's the nationalization of money or even understand how Bitcoin works um, to use uh, leverage. You know, for example, if, if back in 2018, when Republicans passed uh, the tax cut going into the midterms, they needed every single Republican vote to pass that bill. If Rand Paul, who should have known better, if Rand Paul said, you know, if you want my support for this bill, then you're going to eliminate taxes on gold, silver, and cryptocurrency, which is his father's competing currency bill, um, then he could have gotten it done. He could have forced it down their throats because his he, he him standing for that little niche project mattered more to him than it was seen as a detriment from the rest of the caucus, right? So like he could have gotten that done. What matters is not necessarily, again, building a, a broad, popular idea, you know, intellectual persuasion over, you know, your, your core issues. Um, it is simply a taking, you know, acknowledging those areas where there's opportunities to be had and taking advantage of those moments. Um, and again, it, it's one of the frustrations, I think, from anyone who appreciates the history of American right-wing politics is, is, is exactly those moments where, you know, there, 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 there was a failure to fully take advantage of, you know, a, a legislative environment or a procedural technique or whatever. And that's, that's where we got to get better at going forward. Yeah, that, that's something to, to always keep in mind as well with like politics, like you, especially in like mass democratic context, because that, that's like the reality of our situation and people have to adjust to it. And the people who know how to maneuver in that kind of context will be the most successful in politics. Well, let's shift gears a bit to more philosophical matters. And this is why I really enjoy like the content you produce, though, because despite your work in the Republican Party, you're still very philosophically radical, but with obviously a more realist streak to you, how you operate politically. I've noticed you praise the Jacksonian era of American politics a lot for like references was when Andrew Jackson was in power from like 1829 to 1837-ish, and to some extent under his successor, Martin Van Buren. So what would you say makes this period of American history special and what relevance does it have to populism in the 21st century? Well, I, I think Jacksonian politics, first and foremost, I think it's the best, you know, I, I think it was kind of a, a refining of Jeffersonian thought in its own way. There's a lot of good political thought within the Jeffersonian tradition. I think Jefferson himself was, you know, he was a bit too liberal I think, and, and even from a classical standpoint, right? I mean, when, you're, when you rewrite the Bible, um, it takes a little bit of hubris uh, to, to do that. Within the Jacksonians, you had, like, particularly when you consider the environment they were rising up in, you, know, you had basically a uniparty, right? Which is, you know, what, what happened after the War of 1812, the, the, mm. you know, basically the abolishment of the Federalist Party in most of the country. So it was a uniparty. We call it the era of good feelings. It was actually an era of yep. corruption. Uh, Patrick Newman has a great book on that, and the Jacks, and, and you also had the expansion of the vote, right? And so, what the Jacks, the Jacksonians were a deliberate democratic revolt of these backroom dealings, this moderation of the policy, and in this this period of corruption, and in doing so, it forced a two party system. And I think ultimately, if we're looking at the political landscape we've had now, like the the, the impact of the Trump moment is to actually solidify a two party system. Like prior to that. You know, the, the differences between Republicans and Democrats philosophically was, was fairly minor, right? You, you, they, they would distract each other over cultural issues and yada, yada, yada. But ultimately, the government, the state kept growing, power kept consolidating. Um, 
you know, it, it was a, a, a progressive system. And, you know, regardless of what you think about Trump's larger intellectual underpinnings of his, his views, you know, the, the, the Democratic Party has never hated the Republican Party more. I think that hatred, at least for members of it, is genuine and sincere. And I think ultimately the goal of any successful right-wing takeover of the right is to, you know, make that division greater. We don't want to have Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden doing backroom backslapping deals, right? We want the two sides to hate each other. And so I, I think there's a lot to learn from, you know, just you know, the, the Jacksonian energy that they brought in, again, you know, much like Trump, you know, Donald uh, Andrew Jackson was a rock star president. But I think just as important though is the intellectual underpinning of it all. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, when we think about the Jacksonians, Martin Van Buren is, is even more important in many ways than Andrew Jackson, because while Jackson was the icon, the true kind of intellectual foundation was was built by Van Buren. That's why, like, you know, in, in Van Buren was a backer of a man named William Crawford in the 1824 election, not Andrew Jackson. He adapted Jackson to kind of fit his own ends. And what he was trying to do was to restore the sort of Jeffersonian values of the old Republicans. And, and I think it's really interesting because you know, there, there's a, a, you know, part of that process was to build parallel institutions. It was to build the equivalent of Getter in the response of discrimination on the equivalent then of Twitter. And I, I mean that quite literally. Um, you know, back in the day, like the, the mail would travel faster if you were supporting, you know, the established power. Like back in the day, the, I think that the, the, the mail for anti-federalists took like months to travel and like the, the Federalists would like get their mail like delivered like within a couple of weeks, like with like a few days. Like it was, it was crazy. Um, just the way that the system was weaponized, you know, against, you know, that, the regime. And so what they did, you know, they create their own newspapers. You know, you, you create they, they, the part, a big part of their process was using the party infrastructure to educate their people and then to make sure those people turn out. And I think that Having something that you want your people to, you know, making that that two way street, but that, that requires a party that stands for something. And and now you know, there's, there there is, you know, I, I think that the intellectual environment of the right is much better now than it has been in a very long time. It, it's not a cohesive message per se, but you know there is this populist distrust of federal institutions. There's a recognition that the if the FBI can screw over Trump, it can screw over you. There's suspicion about the IRS, suspicion about the military industrial complex, right? You know, th- there's a lot of very good intellectual ideas embedded within the modern right as it takes over the Republican Party that matter. And whereas, you know, back in the day, you know, outside of wanting to bomb Muslims during the war on terror and kind of that, you know, these, this color, these colors don't run sort of Toby Keith style of conservatism. There wasn't much of an intellectual underpinning of the right, you know, the, the conservative movement that had the success back in the day of getting, you know, Ronald Reagan elected, had been, you know, largely, you know, eroded. Um, you know, Rush Limbaugh was, was, you know, great in front of a microphone, but even he, at you know, the Bush era, he kind of watered down some of his messaging. And so I, I think that from the Jacksonian area, we can learn a lot on what does it look like to have a substantive framework of old Republican ideas intertwined with genuine populist politics and build out a much larger infrastructure to allow for lasting change. 
Because um, even though Martin Van Buren lost his election, you know, you know, was never elected for a second term, yada, yada, the Democratic Party that was created during the Jacksonian years lasted for a very, very long time, really until the 20th century and the progressives took over, right? Um, yeah. It survived the Civil War. You know, so so you know, there's a lot of, if you're looking for institution building, if you're looking for political strategy, if you're looking for intellectual platforms to couple with populist politics, all of that, I think, was, you know, you can find that within the Jacksonian era. And I think it's just, it, it, it's such an f- important tradition to understand and hopefully uh, can provide some ideas in the modern world. Great stuff. What would you say were the most significant policy reforms that the Jacksonian coalition was able to implement when Jackson and Van Buren were in power? Uh, well, first and foremost, they were able to kill the bank. Which is important. The Jeffersonians were able to do the same in 1800. Um, they did that by expanding, um, uh, kind of taking away the, the privileges that the bank held. And, and I, again, I think all of this is important. You know, not quite uh, uh, direct comparisons in banking today than there were in 1820s, you know, 30s. But I think that um, creating those parallel institutions winding down the, the the monopoly powers of the federal regime, not just the monetary issues, but generally, I think all that is very good. It's very Jacksonian. Um, they railed against, you know, you know, all sorts of corporate privilege, which I think is a cornerstone of, of the modern right now. Um, uh, so I think that's the sort of stuff that's important. They, they also were very successful in cutting down the, the size of government spending. And I think that's important because ultimately the size of gov- government goes directly to the corruption of government. Smaller, frugal governments are less prone to corruption. And I think that when we have these sort of conversations going on with the right right now about like common good conservatism and, and the importance of, you know, what role is the state on promoting virtue? Um, all of them, I think, are valid points. I think that their criticisms of most of a lot of libertarians in those sort of conversations are valid. But my response would, would be that often there is a blind spot to the way that you know, again, simply a large energetic government plays a role in corruption. You know, the Hamiltonian era was an era of corruption. And so if you're a, a you know, young national conservative and you want to call yourself a Hamiltonian federalist and, you know, economic policy because you think, you know, because Hamilton built America and, you know, you, you know he likes industrial policy and that sort of sounds like Trump, you know, in 2016. Well, I'm sorry, like it's it's, do do some more reading, guy, and and I think that you know, it goes to there. There is a bit of of kind of economic know nothingness with some aspects of the right that can be detrimental. And then I, I think the irony of it is that you know if if there's anything that's kind of the you know what, what's what's the one historical moment that that caused just about everyone on the right to shriek in horror? It's the French Revolution. You know the the setting of the French Revolution was grounded in economic crises. The economic crisis was fueled by the ideas of Jean-Baptiste Colbert, who was the finance minister of Louis XIV. Um, he's a historically well-known one because, you know, being a good finance minister of someone like Louis XIV was, you, you were meant to justify whatever the king wanted, right? So, like, that's that, 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 that coalition, that axis of, of altar and throne, right? Like, you know, that's how you made your mark in history. He was very good at it. Um, the problem is that again, 100 years later, his policies leads leads to the French Revolution. Um, you know, with, within America, you know, you, you have 10 years of Federalist Party rule, uh, fueling this corruption. And then you get the Jeffersonian Revolution in 1800, right? They're the party of 
George Washington couldn't maintain control for more than 12 years. You know, he couldn't, couldn't maintain control for more than four years after George Washington dies. These how bad those economic policies are. And so I, I think that um, you know, the, the appreciating the role that good economic plays in fostering good civic virtue um, is, is something where there's, a, there, there's, there's an outlet there that I think you know, libertarians can provide, you know, good, good libertarians, you know, proper economics can provide value on the right in ways that can have some payoff going forward. Yeah, if you're going to take away anything from Andrew Hamilton that's good is the fact that he had a realist foreign policy. He wasn't like some whack job Jeffersonians who were really getting down with the French Revolution, saw that like as an opportunity. Like if you're going to use Hamilton, like use him selectively. He was a pretty brilliant statesman, but on economic policies, like really lacking. And if, if anything, the people that really were vindicated in the long term were the anti-federalists in my view. And yeah, now one part I've found of your analysis that's pretty amusing is how you and some other folks at the Mises Institute take a very contrarian view of the 20th century because when you look at your typical like progressive and like mainstream liberal theories of history, they'll always consist of like this weird analysis of how everything is just always getting better as the years go by. And this kind of engenders like a mindset where you don't like really respect the past. And in many respects, it's kind of like Whig theory of history, if you will. It treats like the 20th century as like a universally good period in history. And anyone who dares question it is labeled as like a bigot, racist, or reactionary, whatever word you want to throw out there. I've seen you and some other people say that we should just repeal the entire 20th century. What do you mean by that exactly? My point is a recognition that you know the 20th century was a dark age. It's not something to celebrate. And you know, a lot of the great consequence you know, and, and, and we suffer today from the consequences of that era and and i think that you know if, if we are going to build a better world i don't think we should want to see it as a simply a continuation of the 20th century but but recognizing where we went wrong and i think this goes again i'm very sympathetic to the the, the post-liberal you know schools of thought within the, the right uh, I think there's a lot of good criticisms there that apply even to classical liberalism and, and the, 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 the least vulgar state. You know, I, I think that the institutions that we built were a lot, you know, we, we saw the, the, the erosion of civic society, civil society for, for growth of the state. I think that's very, very bad. Obviously, the, the state's takeover of money in the truest sense has had incredible consequences to civilization. Culturally, again, the, the breakdown of Christianity in the West, uh, I think particularly, and, and you know, it's even worse in Eastern Europe, or you know, Western Europe than it is in, in America. Uh, I think these are all things that we should recognize as, as, as sins, as bad, and that we need to reverse. And I, I, luckily, I, you know, I think there are some trends out there. I think that, that, you know, that there is something to be said about a reversal of the centralizing trend the, the nationalist movements throughout the world can be decentralizing in power rather than centralizing um you know there's there's all sorts of breakthroughs in technology that kind of upset some of these institutions in the 20th century uh you know i, I know you know I, I see a little bit here and there on the edges of you know some 
areas of younger people getting more interested in not just religion, but in particular like uh, Orthodox, you know, Eastern Orthodox churches or, 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 you know, Catholicism and things like that. You know, I, I think anything that you know, we need to be re- evaluating what we lost in the 20th century, culturally, spiritually, uh, institutionally. And, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, great wealth to be, to be learned from the, you know, the, the century prior, um, including the Jacksonians. Oh, yeah. I think that we should always look at the past because like, even if the past was obviously like less technologically advanced, there's a lot of like really like timeless lessons that can be gleaned from those eras. And when you see like a total like deterioration of culture, as we see now, we should question narratives of like the 20th century, especially when it's become like the official talking point of all these like legacy institutions. Now, let's like wrap this episode up on a more practical note because people are always going to be one uh, wanting like some type of like solution or plan to change things because it's like it's not enough to just complain about the status quo. So, like, let's put yourself like in a role like say you're a libertarian, conservative, or just any other individual with right leaning inclinations. That's ticked off with the Republican Party establishment, what course of action would you recommend that they take in order to change the party and move it in a more right-wing populist direction? Well, I think first and foremost is getting involved at the institutional level. You know, if, if you really want to make a difference and help shape what the Republican Party can be, make it into something that actually is an opposition party, Wherever you are, there you have a local county Republican Party. And there's probably a few clubs in that party. You know, simply being involved, you know, you, it, it could be the the rec or the, you know, the executive committee or you know, the priest. You become a precinct committee man. Um, there's all sorts of fun that you can actually have that sort of structure. You can try to get resolutions passed. You know, and the great thing is there's so much energy. You know, your your average Trumper is angry and skeptical of of power, and you know, it's very radical in nature. And so, what you want to do is you want to provide you want to take advantage of that anger, that frustration that people actually feel, and you want to direct it and guide it. And you can do that if you if you, you know, interject, yourself, interject yourself in some of these clubs and lead on it. And so, can you, you know, for example, you know, get your county rec to endorse basically a vote of no confidence on Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> Just so your, it's your county sticking it to Kevin McCarthy saying, we don't want our congressman to vote from a Speaker of the House next year. Does that alone make sure your congressman know? But but what it'll do is it, it could create a, a a media headline, right? If, if if it doesn't, shame on you, right? Like so, you send that resolution to your local newspaper, you post it on your Facebook page, and then you get some conversation going, right? And if you have, you know, one one county doesn't matter, but if you have you know fifty counties doing it, you know, it it becomes a talk radio story, right? And there's all sorts of things you can do there using the levers that exist. Another thing is that if you're involved in some of these clubs, again, you know, maybe you're not a precinct committee man itself. Maybe you are simply involved with, uh, you know, a social club. Well, you know, get control of their social media. Gives you a platform with the Republican brand where you can actually dictate some of the messaging coming out. Put your voice into the club. Make your voice what is seen. You know, you can do it by creating content. You know, do a, uh, you, know, you don't even have to do this in the Republican Party structure. You know, a lot of the issues that we have with cronyism, with abuse of power, with, you know, allowing leftist groups to come in and do trainings that they shouldn't do to innocent people, right? A lot of that stuff is done at the the local government level. Well, 
follow your live streams of your county commission or your city council meeting and then do commentary of it. You know, take advantage of all of the, the new tools that make it easy to do live streams and, you know, air conversation from the city council and explain why what they're saying is that this person's about to be ripped off or, you know, how what they're calling this fee is actually a tax and, you know, create content of explaining to your neighbors how your local government is screwing you over. Um, you know, we, we, we live in a lot of news deserts, right? A lot of the, we've seen this massive consolidation in the newspaper industry. Well, be, be the local content in your area. Uh, the nice thing about all these things is that the, the main goal is that you want to, you want to you know, be building your own social capital. You, you want your name to matter. You want to be a leader. And you do a leader by acting like it, by providing a service to your fellow man. And, you know, you can do it at the party level. You can be at the, do it at the city level. You can do it at the county level, whatever. School board. And the thing is, is that, you know, what you'll end up doing is you'll find people that, that want to do what you're doing too. And then you'll build up networks. And then you'll, you know, like the, and to me, like that's that's all things that you know. It, it's it's easy to come in and have these grand plans on. Oh, well, I'm going to run for you know Office X, or, or you know I want to come in and, and really make people care about this issue. Well, if you, you 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 can you can raise yourself up by performing and and by contributing to these organizations. And I, I think that matters. Um, again, I have appreciation for what the party structure can do. You know, there's all sorts of important battles that go on within the party um, that go a long way in helping shaping the direction of you know, what this institution can be. Um, and I think all that stuff is important. I think you have a lot of fun with it if you have a little bit of creativity and a cause. And I think all that matters. And worst case, you know, if, if, if you know, and there's, there's many areas where the people that are in charge of these organizations are awful. They're not Trumpers. They're old establishment hacks. And they do a pretty good job of controlling things. Well, even in that sort of scenario, you can create your own organization. Um, the Republican Liberty Caucus, the RLC, you know, there's a lot of them in Florida. They're growing elsewhere. Um, but, you know, you could, you could start your own RLC chapter, which would allow you to endorse against incumbents if you want to, you know, to, to make choices in primaries. You know, that's why if you're, if you're someone interested in like a third political party, like the, the LP, well, just join the RLC instead. You get the same sort of aspect where you can be adversarial in elections against sitting bad Republicans. You simply do it in a primary rather than a general election. And you can build an institution that has a branding and, and, you know, do endorsements and grades and all that sort of fun stuff, right? And so, you know, no matter where you are, and, and you know, obviously then if, if you are in a, a deep blue area, then this, you know, you, you can still do the, the local content creation, that sort of stuff, fine, nonpartisan stuff, you know, maybe do issue-driven stuff if there's something there that, you know, transcends that. You know, obviously I, I, I would not spend time getting active in your local Republican Party. Most cases, if you're living in a, California or something, um, just probably not a good good investment of your time. But you know, at that point, you know, the, the your priority should be making enough money to be able to move move away from those areas rather than trying to entrench yourself much longer. So, uh, yep, those are some of my ideas right there. Great stuff. Very actionable advice that I hope many of my listeners implement in real time. All right, I think this is a good place to bring this conversation to a close. Uh, though it was a great talking to you about this wide array of subjects. I think my listeners will find it to be very informative. Where can my listeners keep up with your latest work? You can find me on both Twitter and Getter at Though Bishop. It's a weird name, so I stand out there. You can find my work at Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org. 
I have an economics for beginners video series on there as well at begineconomics.com. And if you're interested in some of the, the paleo libertarian stuff, I have a substack of old articles, rothbardrockwellreport.com. You can find some interesting articles there if you like this content. Great stuff. Again, to all of my listeners, thank you for tuning in to El Nino Speaks. El Nino has spoken.